Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am really excited today to introduce a wonderful colleague and friend, Dr. David Brennan. He is the Associate Dean of Research at the Factor Imantash Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto, and he's also a professor there. He founded and directs the Cruise Lab, an interdisciplinary community-based social work research lab dedicated to addressing sexual, mental, physical, and emotional health of gay, bisexual, two-spirit, cisgender, and transgender men who have sex with other men. He previously was awarded the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, or OHTN, Research Chair, and is currently awarded the OHTN Endgame Leadership Chair in Gay and Bisexual Men's Health to support his work. He has been directly involved in the HIV epidemic since 1983 in many social work roles, including case manager, clinical supervisor, psychotherapist, program manager, and researcher. And today, his research focuses uh, mostly on HIV and sexually transmitted infections, risks, and resiliencies for gay, bisexual, and two-spirit, and other men who have sex with men. So welcome, David. That was a long introduction. I'm exhausted just from that. <laughs> yes. No wonder I'm so tired, <laughs> so I'm really thrilled to have you as our, our special Pride Guest Edition podcast Thank you. this year. And I usually what I do is I think back to the first time I met somebody. And I actually met you, I think it was 2008. I don't know. Seven. When you interviewed. Seven. 2007. I, rem- I remember when I first met you. Yep, 2007. So in 2007, listeners, I was a simple PhD student. And this fantastic person came in and did a job talk at University of Toronto and blew us out of the water. It, you were amazing. And I was so impressed with you. Since, so how many years is that then? That's 15 uh, Yeah, this, uh, this July will be 15 years. Yeah. So it was 15 years wow. ago that I did my talk, right? I started 15 years ago. Well, yeah. So we need to have a 15th anniversary of meeting um, gathering. So. Okay, I like that. We'll do that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so I want to ask you, are you in Toronto right now? I am in Toronto, yes. yes. So I'm going to show up at your beautiful place filled with plants in <laughs> my time machine. And my time machine is COVID safe. There's, you know, space for like... Gotcha. physically distancing mm-hmm. and i'm gonna say take me back 
to the time and place when you started thinking about stigma and you started thinking about HIV because that's you know the, the main area, but just stigma in general. And just so you know, the time machine is able to go a multiple stopovers and across time and locations. It's a very sophisticated time machine. So where would we, where would we go? You're, you're, you're doing amazing work. This is awesome. <laughs> Very sci-fi. Sci uh, where would we go in this time machine? So to be honest with you, I think I would probably go, and stigma in general, or stigma around HIV, stigma around queer let's, stigma? Let's talk about stigma in general, like or maybe queer and, and HIV stigma, since that's a lot of your work. Okay, yeah. Well, I'll give you a couple of little stops. So one stop was actually in high school, which is when I went to an all-boys high school, and as a gay boy, that was both heaven and hell, <laughs> as you can imagine, because I was surrounded by a lot of other beautiful young boys, and I knew I was different. I just knew I was different. And one of the places where it showed up interestingly for me is in a social justice class. Like we had a social justice class. I went to a college prep school in Connecticut. Oh my God, I sound so white and waspy, <laughs> but I really come from working class, believe it or not. But anyway, my parents really felt like education is important. So I went to this, you know, they really pushed for me to go to this very good school. We had this social justice seminar. And in the seminar, they shared videos from Soweto in South Africa and how black people in South Africa were living this very different life and world mm. in relationship to the beauty and the splendor of South Africa. And it was the first time that I remember in my head going, that is so wrong. And I'm looking at one of my classmates, and of course, it was a prep school, the way the world works. Uh, I, I think in my class of 200, there was one black student. Wow. And I remember looking at him going, oh my God, like, there's a place where this happens. And what does that mean? And what does that bring to people? And it, it so shook me to the core that I'm going to say within about a year, now remember, People come out in high school now. They did not come out in high school in 1979, mm -hmm. 1980, 1980. It just didn't happen. So I, uh, it made me realize that what this difference in me was that was that I was gay, and seeing kind of the stigma of how black people were treated in South Africa. Again, it was just this. I mean, it was secretly filmed. You couldn't even. You know, it was terrible filming, but it was like, this is so brutal that it really made me realize that a lot of what I believed about the world needed to be shook up. And it also meant that I had to come to terms with my own identity as a gay guy. And I did come out to people in my senior year in high school, including one of my best friends, who were still best friends, I'm not going to say how many years, 200 years later, <laughs> who was also gay and a couple of friends too who were straight and you know i just thought oh my god you know what is this going to be to a one all of them were incredibly positive and supportive and i thought oh okay one could be gay in the world but 
it was shortly after that when I went to university in the time machine where I saw a news article in the New York Times about homosexuals, Haitians, hemophiliacs, and what was the other H? They called it the 4-H club. Heroin users were being diagnosed with this new condition. At first it was called GRID, then it became AIDS. And I realized immediately that this was going to impact my life. And I was really young and I was scared to death. I thought, wow, I'm just me. And now I'm going to have to live with this. I knew it. I knew mm -hmm. it immediately. And in fact, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a little older now, but at that you know, when you're young, you kind of jump into things, right? And I was like, okay, the only way I'm going to figure this out is I'm going to go and volunteer. Mm -hmm. And all of my friends were freaked out that I was volunteering at an AIDS organization, that I was going to get AIDS just from volunteering there. I remember getting in a taxi cab with someone who was sick, taking them to the hospital. And even in my head, I was like, oh my God, am I going to get AIDS? Because that's what the message was and the stigma associated with it of recognizing that A, I'm different, that I'm not afforded the same opportunities, privileges, if you will. I was afforded a lot of privileges, obviously, but at least in terms of being queer, I was not afforded the same privileges. And, you know, I really decided that it was really important to do something about it. I couldn't just sit there, I had to act. And so that's what I did. And it actually, it was kind of wild because at one point I'm a university undergraduate and the chief medical officer of the university was asked by the university radio station to talk about HIV and AIDS. And he called me because I was very public wow. and very out. And I got death threats and all kinds of terrible things uh, being out, but he called me and said, will you do this radio show with me? I have a feeling you know more about this than I do. And I was like, you're a chief medical officer, like what, what? And so, you know, those are a couple of examples of just recognizing that like people living with HIV were gonna be seen as different, as less than, that gay people, gay men in particular, it's a different dynamic for women. We can certainly talk about that. It's not that there's no stigma or anything, it's just a different dynamic. I think a lot of that is based on toxic masculinity, but whatever. The idea that being, you know, if you are having sex with men, then you're not a man, and that being kind of stigmatized. So those are those are a couple of thoughts I have about that. Thank you. You didn't mention the place of your university. Oh, uh, it was Boston College. I don't oh, mind. Okay, Boston. I, Boston College is where I got my PhD, but it's also where I got my bachelor's and my master's. Okay, okay. I'm really grateful that you sh you talked both about experiences of stigma and homophobia and also your knowledge of the beginning of the HIV pandemic yeah I, I remember the first time i saw a sign that said aids kills i was i was young you know and i, I remember it was a very scary sign like yeah. a billboard in toronto right i'm from a small yep. town no aids billboards in a small town i was like aids what's aids like what a scary what a scary uh -huh. thing for a kid i don't know i mean i don't remember how old i was it, maybe 10 or something like that but but i remember it being like whoa what is this thing that deserves a billboard? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. says it kills, right? That was the messaging. So I want to 
I want to talk to you about like the first question that I ask everybody is, okay, right now it's 2022. Why should we care about stigma? Like, is there still some, is it still matters? It's still important around the stigma that you're talking about with HIV or LGBTQ folks? Like, what's the big deal? It is so, it so still matters. I appreciate why you're asking that question. The reality is, of course, it's still out there. And of course, it still matters. You know, I mean, I can give you a couple of examples just of kind of current stuff that's based on some of the work that I've been doing as a researcher. We've been doing a project where we've been talking to, we collected some quantitative data, so survey data, but then we also did some interviews with gay men in and around Ontario about about the blood ban, like the blood deferral policy of Canadian blood services, that basically up until I'm gonna say about eight years ago, any man who had sex with another guy from 1978 forward was automatically not allowed to donate blood mm -hmm. under any circumstances for fear of HIV transmission. And the thing about that is, there's a couple of things about that. First and foremost, if you know gay men in your life, <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I know gay men in my life, <laughs> you will know that gay men are some of the most altruistic people out there. We never have problems recruiting people into our studies. We never have problems asking people to be part of our community advisory boards to help us do better research where we're really thinking about what the community needs. There's some interesting work that was done in the 90s. It's kind of died down about altruism in the gay community in particular, and even interviews with police officers who are like, oh no, we're so happy to work in the gayborhood because there's rarely ever violence in the gayborhood. You know, you like go to a gay bar. I remember being at this panel and someone said, so who in the audience has ever experienced violence in a gay bar? And unfortunately I have to raise my hand because I did experience someone punching me in a gay bar in the face. Oh no. But, it, but I was the only one in a room of 400 gay men. And it was only once and, in, in know, many years, right? Not that many. I mean, you're yeah, still young, yeah, but in yeah. several years. Yes, I'm, yes I'm, I'm still young. Thank you for that. That's another kind of stigma. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, gay men in general tend to appreciate the opportunity to be around each other, queer guys, queer people in general. I'm not saying it's perfect and there aren't disagreements and all kinds of stuff. But when we have the opportunity to get together, we want to enjoy, we want to step outside of the homophobia of the world and the heterosexism of the world and just enjoy, enjoy each other and enjoy the time in the space. So this kind of altruism means you know, for me, just me in particular, I just, I've never had children. I don't think I'm going to have children. I'm starting to get up there in years. And so I'm not likely to have children. But I know that I need to pay good taxes so we have a really good education system uh, so that we raise really good, smart, intelligent Canadian youth, mm -hmm. period. 
there's an incredible sense of altruism, I think, in the community. And the reason I say that is because not being able to give blood feels like we're less than. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the policies over the years is maybe 35 years ago when it was kind of like we didn't necessarily have testing for HIV, you know, there's a window period of when you get HIV to when you actually test positive for HIV. So, you know, the tests are better now. It used to be like three months, then it was like six weeks, then it was a month. Now it's about nine or 10 days that the test can pick up when someone's HIV positive. And so, you know, it always felt like we're doing, we're, we're saying we don't want the blood of gay men, even though Gay men are interested in providing and engaging and altruistically engaging with the community. And so I'm not going to argue whether giving blood is a right, but it does to say we don't want your blood if you've had sex with another man for 35 years doesn't make sense. And and it's it's offensive. It's like, what's it's wrong offensive. with my blood? <laughs> like, well, that, you're so saying that, our blood is tainted. It's, it's exactly it's, it's not safe. Like it's just promoting these stereotypes. Exactly, exactly. It's the dangerous predatory that somehow we're trying to do something bad. And, you know, all of the blood is tested. It never really made sense to me. And also many, the vast majority of gay men protect themselves from HIV and other STIs, or they get tested regularly. There, there's the possibility of HIV, you know, if someone's in a monogamous relationship for years, they still can't give blood. You know, it just, it never made sense. And so you're right, the stigma, the stigmatizing message is your blood is bad. It's dirty. It's, uh, in truth, it's predatory. Like, your blood is going to come into my body and cause me harm, even though there's zero possibility of that happening, for instance, in my case, because I am not HIV positive, and I don't want to stigmatize people who are HIV positive, because that's the other end of it. But not every gay man is at the same level of risk for HIV. So... Eh, you know, it's, it's true. I, I remember that I think it was the same day you were doing one of the news interviews. And I also did a news interview about stigma and the blood ban. And she said to me, you know, now we're going to ask everybody about sexual practices like anal sex. What do you think about that? Or should we just get rid of that question? And I said, well, I think it's great. We also need to destigmatize de talking about sex in general and ask everybody about sex and, 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 and anal sex. They did not use that on the news. They they uh, did not use that specific. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> I surprised. was like, oh, I wonder if they're going <laughs> to, you know, she even looks surprised, but I realized that we're not being honest about sex in general and conversations and 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 it's just part of a problem, I think, is when you don't ask people the same questions, then you're assuming what people are doing behind closed doors, which you you actually don't know. You know. Absolutely. You know what, Carmen? I have always said, if we could stop the world right now and do a massive, if we could take a survey globally 
and I'm going to be very explicit here, to talk, to check about who's engaging in anal sex. So how many people have their penis inside the anus of someone else? Okay, I'm using clinical terms, but you know what I mean. I can guarantee you, 100% guarantee you, that the number of men who have their penis inside another man's anus is gonna be significantly smaller than the number of men who have their penis inside a woman or a female identified person. Absolutely. I, the assumption is that heterosexual people don't engage in anal intercourse. And that's stupid. Like, it's just stupid. I mean, I remember going for a job interview in England. Gosh, it would have been 2005. And they were saying that many, many adolescents were having anal sex because in, in heterosexual partnerships because it was a way to not get pregnant. So exactly. and, and it's a way to somehow maintain virginity, which is a whole other thing. But, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. I'm just like, these things are happening, people. So you don't want to talk about it. This means they're not happening. Yeah, exactly. So that's why they've changed the policy, which is a good thing. But I, I still don't, I'm not sure it actually really completely gets at it. But at least then people who are, you know, whatever, they're using other protective tools like PrEP or con consistent condom use. I'm not sure they get caught in this. That's that's part of the problem. So it's not, the stigma isn't going to go away. And, uh, you know, as I've said many times, whenever I talk about this stuff, so if that comment, Carmen, if your comment when you were interviewed was put on the air, I can assure you that the comments below that story, you would want to just scream. It would make you so angry. The things that people think they can say in comments. Oh, yeah. Uh, unbelievably homophobic. So, you know, I just, I always say, look, if you're going to ask me about this, just know you're going to get hateful comments. And they, and they will. They will. The next question I want to ask you, and you, you really have touched on this, is walk me through a life in the day of somebody and how stigma might pop up in, in the people you're working with. I know you gave a really great example of what stigma looks like in institutional policy around the blood ban and what, how might stigma in, in your, your experience show up in the day of the life of somebody, yeah. you know, maybe one of the young gay men you work with yep. or, yeah, you know. Yeah. You know what? It shows up everywhere. It shows up in the morning when someone wakes up, uh, to make decisions about what to wear, right? Because if I wear something that's bright and colorful, I often, you you know, I often have either bright colored shoes or maybe a brighter colored shirt. I get comments all the time. Like, wow. you know, and sometimes they're complimentary, but I, I, I still can read them a little sometimes I'm not sure it's actually complimentary. Oh, wow, that scarf is so, what a beautiful color red. <laughs> it's like, are you saying you like it? Are you just appreciating it's red? Like, you know, 
You know what I mean? And you've seen my bright blue sneakers and, you know, people make comments about those sneakers quite frequently. And I often wonder, like, is that because they're not comfortable with them? And this sometimes, you know, the other thing that can happen in a day in a life is that it can come from other gay people, right? Or other mm. queer men who are like, oh, man, that's a little much for me. Right. Like, I don't I don't want to be around someone who looks that way, talks that way or behaves that way. So that's it's really like expressing gender and creativity around expression can be, I don't know, flagged as oh, flamboyant or quote in quotes too yeah. much or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, you know, some people see it as too much. Right. So. I mean, other times people are just like, oh my God, girl, you look fabulous in that scarf. That's amazing. Where did you get that? I want one. That's a different response. That's not stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. That's like joining in and like celebrating. And, you know, not everyone has to say that or use those words. But so there, I think also, you know, one example I have, it's kind of, I mean, this is more from my life, but from other people's lives is my, my partner used to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was here in Toronto. And so we would cross the border often, like I would take the train to Windsor, and then he would come and pick me up. And, and we never, not once, did we ever tell the border guard as we were entering the U.S. that we were a couple? Mm. This was 10 years into a relationship. And part of it is because it's, it's that anticipated stigma, right? It's the idea that like, oh God, am I gonna have to deal with this mm -hmm. border guard's thoughts or feelings about the fact that we're a couple? Do I say that we're not married, but you know, would we say husband like, oh, good, good. so it's like, ah, forget it. We're just not going to worry about it. And I often say heterosexual people don't have to think about that. It's just, it's not something they have to think about. Um, I oh, think no for a lot of the young gay men that we have worked with, you know, there's a lot of it comes out online. So people get, you know, nowadays, People don't necessarily go out to clubs and bars. COVID aside, people were going out to clubs and bars a lot less. They were going out to those public places just less before COVID. Of course, now it's even less. You know, people are like, you know, am I going to be seen by someone? So that's one thing if you're going out. But if you're online, how do you present yourself? When you're scrolling through profiles and they're all like chiseled abs and certain kind of body fascism maybe i would say like your body has to look this way in order to be like a viable or a desirable commodity in the community and that also particularly impacts racialized guys positive guys i've i've heard recently that a lot of positive guys are saying that they're on prep uh in their profiles as a way to not tell people they're positive but because they're actually also technically on prep they're taking the same medication but they're not really saying they're hiv positive because they're not likely to transmit the virus sexually so that's an interesting thing like how people feel like they have to be careful about what they present in a profile about who they are and that's very common and they get you know swiped left is it left or right i don't even know i should know but you know people are not interested if they're if they don't look a certain way 
or present a certain way. And that's, that's kind of, it's body, it's race, it's age, it's, you know, all those factors. So there's a tremendous amount of stigma there. Also, you know, is it, you know, I think like even thinking about undergraduate students at the University of Toronto, as you know, I teach an undergraduate course. You know, there are some people who kind of take this undergraduate course, which is in the sexual diversity studies, it's about HIV and social work. And, you know, there are people who take this course as a way of kind of exploring or understanding who they are. They're not taking, it's kind of a safe place mm -hmm. to sort of see, is it okay to be out? We think, oh, we make it really comfortable for people to be out. Mm -hmm. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to be out? So I think there's lots of like ongoing experiences. Do you, uh, I don't know, do mm. you hold your partner's hand? People don't do that in the same way. Why? Because there, fear, there is fear, it's anticipated stigma. There's fear that if they're caught, that there will be violence at the worst, or that someone will say something that will make them very uncomfortable or something homophobic. I remember my ex and I were having an argument on the street and some kid walked up to us and, go, and was like, are you guys gay? I'm like, I'm sorry, you don't walk in between anyone arguing and to say anything unless you're bringing it down. So now there's two angry gay men going, of course we're gay, get the hell out of here. Like, what the hell are you doing? And then we kind of laughed and the argument sort of went away because of that. But you know, isn't that weird? Like we can't have an argument in public, which people do all the time. So. Yeah, and even like where, you are like we're both in Toronto at like it's not the same being on Church Street no. or in a like trendy area holding hands as it is like where I live or you know like a little bit outside of the city center it's not this the level of safety is not the same yeah yeah you know geographically if <laughs> yeah and it's not a hundred percent safe even in even on Church Street or even in the neighborhood it's not a hundred percent safe either mm -hmm. when glee was on a bunch of kids from the local high school that's very close to church street would would go walking down on church street and throw slushies because that's what happened in glee a lot oh. when people were wanted to harass someone they would throw slushies so they would just throw slushies at gay men i mean you know the principal in the school dealt with it but it was like oh my god like glee is supposed to be about acceptance and here people are doing this stupid thing, so. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Right, but, I'm like, give me the slushie, don't throw it I know, me. thank you. Give it to I'll, me. I'll take blue raspberry, please, thank you. But that's the thing, like people don't, uh, people who are not queer don't have to think about that. You know, mm -hmm. they just, it's not part of the energy of their day. And the work it takes as a young person to constantly have to evaluate your environment and assess whether or not it's safe and what that means and what you can be and how you can be, that's like, that's a lot of work and energy. That's where that notion of minority stress and mm -hmm. uh, for a little geeky word, like allostatic load, meaning like increased cortisol and stress hormones in the body because people have to kind of you know be vigilant and make sure they're in an okay or safe place it it, it impacts people's health and wellness for sure that's what we're seeing 
Thank you so much. I think you really laid out so many good examples of what it looks like to experience stigma. I have one last question for the wild cards. Okay. Yes. Oh, I got a wild what? card. <laughs> this is the, this is before. Okay. This is still the last. This is not the wild card yet. What do oh, you want? Okay. <laughs> okay. This is the last stigma question. What do you want the listener to do? How can the listener? Maybe they're walking their dog. I have not received very many other examples of when people listen to podcasts. I'll just use my own walking the dog. What do you want them to do? What, what can they do? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know what? I think one thing is to be aware, first of all, just to be aware of the fact that people who are queer broadly are working very hard to manage their safety. They're working really hard. So anything you can do to, to make sure or to ensure their safety is a good thing. So what's something you can do? Ah, you can, it's pride month. You can have a pride button on. That tells you right away, maybe that's a gay person, maybe that's an ally. There are buttons for mm -hmm. allies. Put one on, like, yeah. so that people around you know that you're a safe person. I, it seems silly, like these little stickers, like this is a safe space, because really what is a safe space? But uh, like, it makes a difference for people to know, oh man, if, if something happened, this person would respond. And then, you know, pursuant to that, if you see something, say something, stop. Mm -hmm. So if you hear someone make a, a queer joke or just don't laugh. Challenge the person. Like, that's really unfair. I know we're just a bunch of guys in the locker room. I don't know if people are listening to your podcast in a locker room. I have no idea. But like, you know, if you are and someone makes a joke about whatever, don't drop the soap or all these other stupid innuendos, you know, like, don't laugh and be like, why are you saying that? You know, let people who are queer in your life know that you value and appreciate their experience. Like, ask them about their experience. Thoughtfully, you don't need to ask them, like, so how do you have sex or who plays the girl? These are questions I've been asked in my oh life. Oh, my God. And it's like, well, there isn't a girl when I'm with another guy. There's two guys, so I don't, I don't know what you mean. So tell me what you mean, which makes them very uncomfortable because they're asking a stupid question. So, you know, like ask questions about, you know, what's that like for you? What's your story? Everyone wants to tell their story, everyone. You, Carmen, you do qualitative research along with me as part of, you know, your, the different kinds of research that you do. You know that people love the opportunity to share their experience and their story. It's so healing, right? Mm -hmm. That someone else hears it non-judgmentally yeah. and provides love and support and feedback. So that's another thing you can do is invite people, uh, enter with a, from a place of curiosity, not a place of judgment, but a place of curiosity. Yeah, and when you see something, you know, I, ha I have this friend, straight friend I went to high school with. He just sent me, it was a, I guess it was a meme or was it an announcement about mm -hmm. Geek Pride Day? I don't know when that was. I guess it was in the last week or so. And he was like, I think they're kind of like jumping on the gay pride bandwagon. And this kind of bugs me. 
and he was saying this my straight friend and i was like well that's interesting i was like you know is it why isn't there like a rainbow do they mean queer geek pride he's like no this is just like geek pride and then he made a comment about incels which is a whole other thing but you know i was like well that's kind of weird they're kind of absconding with you know it's it's a little bit of appropriation right yeah, like you don't really need a straight pride. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe a geek pride day, but like, why would you do that two days before like June, which is usually pride month? That like, there, There's something strange about that. And it wasn't rainbowy or anything. It was, it was geeky. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm happy for geeks to have pride there. You know, there's a need, but yeah, no. So, uh, so those are some, you know, that was just a conversation. Like he just reached out and he said, have you seen this? Like, you know, so it, he wasn't just having a conversation with me about gay stuff, but he was kind of saying it was, it was on a different level. It was like, here's this weird thing. I don't think this is cool. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's cool either. It's kind of strange. So. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good, I really appreciate you bringing that up just one that you can have deep conversations year round exactly. about what it, what what it means to be gay in this world and you know when the pulse shooting happened that was really traumatizing, so traumatizing. for yep. lgbt people all yep. around the world yep. you know and, and just it would have been nice if other people who were not in the community recognized that the impact or, or had yep. conversations you know, you know what i didn't know that i slept in late i think that morning and i got a phone call from a friend a i think she might identify as bisexual i'm not sure but i know she's had relationships with men and women maybe polyamorous i'm not sure but anyway the first person i got a call from was not really from a queer person i i don't know that she would identify as queer i'm not sure but it was like have you seen this are you okay like what's going on and you know it was just uh, you know it was like so meaningful to me i'll never forget that that someone you know reached out to me because that happened yeah you know and she knew i would be affected by it so yeah so when you see these things when you see these stupid comments homophobic comments and we're going to see a lot more i know we probably don't have time but you know the whole thing with monkeypox and the fact that it's it looks like a lot of the way it has been spread and the kind of initial cohort of people with monkeypox is people from a sauna bathhouse in Montreal and public health didn't inform the bathhouse or people going into the bathhouse that there were cases affiliated associated with that bathhouse and so that's going to come out which i'm sure they were trying to be careful about how they did it but then they put a lot of people other people at risk for for getting monkeypox and so the numbers are just going to grow and they're going to grow among gay and bisexual men over the next couple of weeks because it takes a couple of weeks before you show symptoms so the comments about this, this is a perfect example of when we're going to see comments, homophobic comments in the press and in social media. So protect yourself if you're queer. Don't read too many of the comments. And if you're someone who is a good ally, make sure you challenge what people are saying, please. Exactly. It's, it's, it, it's harmful. And you have a role here. Exactly. Because it could have... It has nothing to do at all with being a gay man. It just happens to be where people nope. were gathering at one yep. point in time and with who. It could have been 
at any other place, at any other nightclub. So, yeah. Or, yeah, it could have been at Coachella. Yeah. Like, it could have been at any event where people are close to each other for a long period of time. It's on bedding. It's on clothing. Like, it can be transferred that way or long-term uh, respiratory uh, connection with someone. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm going to go to the wild cards. Are you you ready? Sounds good. I am ready. This is is where they get to know the real real you. Okay. Okay. Wild card number one. Okay. What are you currently watching on Crave or Hulu or Netflix or whatever is your, your medium? Um, yeah. Uh... I have finished Heartstopper. Oh, I haven't started that. I've been sort of wanting to. I I finished it and then I watched it again, oh, the whole God. thing. Like it is the only way I can describe it is it's just sweet. I mean, there are critiques of it. It doesn't get into a lot of the issues for the trans or racialized characters. The two leads are two white cisgender guys but it is a beautiful and sweet story and it's so well done. It is so well done. And without being like over the top, you have to watch it, Carmen. Okay. I, I, it's just sweet. Okay. Like, it's just sweet. I. It's been renewed for two and three seasons. So I think that that renewal will get into more in depth of, with the other characters in terms of the other issues they're dealing with around experiences of racism and transphobia and such. So. But it's a okay, group. great. Yeah, go. That's okay, good. side note. Did yeah. you watch It's a Sin? I did. I did. And I watched the first one. And then, you know, my partner was like, this is going to get depressing. And she wouldn't watch it anymore with me. And I just haven't. Did you watch the whole thing? Should I watch the whole thing? I watched the whole thing. <laughs> I had to watch the whole thing. But I lived through that. Yeah. Like that was, that was, that was my life. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I was that young, yes. Uh, I wasn't in England. You know, there are things about it that are different, but that was my life. It was so powerful and intense. I have to finish it. I have to muster that, okay. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I I suggest, I suggest you finish that and then move on to Heartstopper. Okay, I like- uh, Heartstopper will just lift you up. I like the uplifting things. I'm mainly into drag race. Ah, there you go. Okay, next wild card. If you could go anywhere in the world right now with anybody, living or dead, for like a dinner or a drink, or who mm. who would you take and where would you go? That's such a great question. Um, I would love to go. This is such a good question. I would I would actually really love to go to. I'm trying to decide in my head between South Africa. Or like New Zealand, like just a whole. I would love to go to, I would love to go back and see more of South Africa. Let's say that. And then I think who I would love to go with, you know, in truth, who I would love to go with is my mom. I know it's. My mom was a really interesting person. She was a nurse in the maternity ward. She was a a hospice care nurse. She was a public health nurse. She's done really amazing, interesting things. And she's, she's really kind of bright and funny. And we, you know, we, we bump heads all the time, but it's like in a loving way. 
and I think I just think she would I think she would find like Cape Town. More well, like Cape Town. Like a magical place. Just a magical place. But even other places. I love animals. She loves animals. So like to go on like a safari. I mean it's hard. She's eighty six. But you know, to go on a safari and to see the animals respectful nice. of both the earth and the animals would be important to me. But yeah, I think uh, I think she'd love that, and that it would be really cool to mm. do that with her. Your mom seems cool. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, I know there's tons of eco eco yeah. safaris, yeah. you know. Yeah. So <laughs> that's so cool. I love Cape Town too. Okay, the last 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 question is: Is there any words of wisdom or words of advice that have helped you in your journey of life that you want to share with the listener? Yeah, I think, um, I guess the main, hmm, there's probably a lot of them, but let me think about kind of a key one that's relevant to this area. I think part of it is that, um, you know, we, life, when I was, when I turned 25, the 26th person I knew personally in my circle died from AIDS. So why is that relevant? It's relevant because even though I'm getting up in years and it's like, oh my God, wow, this is hard. Growing older is hard. There's things that happen, right? In your body or whatever, things happen. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to celebrate each birthday, i.e. every day um, that we're here because none of this is guaranteed. So to me, it's about... Um, finding those connections, people you like and appreciate, spending more time with them, people you like a little less, spending less time with them. I think that's really important. We did a research study on older people living with HIV, and one of the concepts that came out was this idea of pruning, mm. of taking people out of your life because they're actually not helping you grow anymore. And the challenges of doing that and realizing that that's, you know, it, I, I don't see that as a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. It's like, you've got great energy and you bring a lot and I love you and care and respect you. I want to put more energy into this relationship. You bring nothing but negativity and, uh, you know, I don't need that. So I'm going to figure out a way to see less of you and engage less with you. So that's what I would say. Pruning. I love that. It's tough pruning, but you know, you're right. It's very hard. It is hard, but, and it's not, I don't mean to be mean about it. It's just, it's okay to like back off and um, step away when people are more challenging. Thank you so yeah. much. You're welcome. This was fun. It's always fun to talk to you. You're amazing. And listeners, you can find out more about Dr. David Brennan at the link beside the podcast i'll have a link to his bio and his awesome lab so thank you again you're welcome thank you thank you for listening to everybody hates me let's talk about stigma hosted by dr carmen logie join us again for more conversations with stigma experts from around the globe
です。